0: From local to global, we bring you the best conversations with your favorite athletes and Olympians.
1: This is the Olympics.com podcast. Sometimes the Olympics.com podcast doesn't really need a whole lot of introduction. Welcome to this episode, Aligning with World Health Day. It's the story of Team GB, that's Great Britain, reigning Paralympic champion Aaron Kennedy, the coxswain of Team GB's Paralympic gold medal rowing team, the mixed cox team, A dominant team in recent years, if you follow that. Erin's life came to a crossroads about a year ago, though, when she was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer.
0: Chemotherapy is no walk in the park. And I was very aware in that moment that my life was about to change very significantly. And I think the most scary part of that for anyone who gets diagnosed with anything of this ilk is just not knowing what the future looks like.
1: Very serious. Did it ruin her life? No. Cut short her career? No way. Did it change her way of living? Absolutely. Incredibly, the woman whose job it is to align teammates in the heat of a race, to be the voice of calm and decision, now has a megaphone to help others. Enough of me. Here's Aaron Kennedy's incredible story for all of us to experience, but especially the women of the world. You're listening to Olympics.com podcast. World Health Day brings us the opportunity to have a chat with one who knows all about health, well-being, and of course, the joys of overcoming tremendous challenges. She's Erin Kennedy, the reigning Paralympic champion coxswain for Team GB's Tokyo 2020 Paralympic gold medal rowing mix cox four team. Welcome to the olympics.com podcast, Erin. We're so happy to have a few moments with you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very much looking forward to chatting.
1: Did I get the uh, long title name of your event there? I I, want to make sure I nail it.
0: Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. It's it's a bit of a mouthful.
1: (laughs) It doesn't roll off the tongue, but we get the idea. And you're joining us from uh, Henley on Thames. It's a real treat. So you're also a two-time world and European champion in that same event. Really blessed that you're that talented and you have talent around you. But way better than all that, you fought cancer and came out uh, the other end. Better in many ways, right? Congratulations on that epic win! I see the smile, and that that seems to say it all.
0: Yeah, totally, and it is very fresh news as well. I I literally got the all clear um, just over a week ago, so it still feels like it's sinking in, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a big a big ten months of my life.
1: No question. So tell us uh, why you're better physically, obviously, but mentally and spiritually.
0: Yeah, I I just think. It's very confronting, very humbling um to be diagnosed with something like breast cancer. Um, but particularly, you know, I was 29 when I was diagnosed, at an age that you, if I'm honest, you think you're pretty invincible <laughs> um when you're that age. Um, you know, I was genuinely fitter and healthier, or oh, so I thought, than I had sort of ever been, um, in my life coming off the back of Tokyo. Um, I was back into training. Um, I do a lot of land training, uh, you know, sort of 10 plus sessions a week as well as all the coaching and everything else. I was, I was great. And, um, it really sort of, yeah, took me by surprise. And even when I went to get my lump checked, um, I really, I just didn't think anything would actually come of it. I just sort of thought I was doing my due diligence really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I think it's just taught me so much about me and myself and my resilience. And I I think really as well, it's made me realize how blessed I am to have the people around me, the team around me, and to actually be able to do something I love as my job. Because, you know, my first thought was, you know, can I still compete? Can I still row? Can I still go to Paris next year? Um, You know, and if that's one of the first things you think, then you're probably doing something you enjoy every day.
1: For sure. As I said, there's so much to unpack here, but before we reflect, let's celebrate all the gratitude you're feeling. And uh, this is what you posted just recently on Insta. It's official, all clear, no evidence of disease, no more treatment, no more cancer, just like that, which you don't really mean just like that because it it was a, a struggle. It is finished. It takes a village to get to this point. Cancer is truly the worst way to meet and spend time with the most amazing people um, well said. And and tell me what was in your heart in in those moments when you wanted to get it out there. Hey, you know, I'm okay.
0: Yeah. Um, I think actually one of the worst things um, about being diagnosed, particularly in the early days is, is having to tell people um, because, you know, you're processing and dealing with uh, a lot of emotion and uncertainty and and then sort of having to bring other people into that environment with you is really tough um because you know you don't have the answers for them they want to have answers for you and and ultimately you just sort of have to go look this is what i know and and we're going to do this together and and it's really tough and so one of the best things on the complete you know other end of things is being able to actually say do you know what like we're all clear like we're done um and that was a real joy um and that sort of just like that is, is, you know, the reason I use those words is because it's so weird because you are so immersed. You are so, um, you know, you're having treatment all the time. You're in the hospital all the time. And then all of a sudden it's, it's, it is almost like a shake of the hand and we'll see you soon, you know, having checkups and things like that, but you're immersed it. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, the leash has been taken off and you're free to go in the world again. And it's, it can be, you know, a little bit destabilizing. And I think mm-hmm. it's going to take some time to get used to it. But yeah, it's sort of a lot of relief and a lot of really complex emotions, to be honest.
1: Because you really couldn't dare to to dream of that day. You had to keep in the moment, didn't you? You had to keep the resolute sense that I'm okay in this situation.
0: Yeah, totally. And um I do think, you know, my, the way that I've approached this diagnosis and everything throughout my treatment has been, um, I've been very aware of sort of how I operate and how I choose to react to things and essentially holds up a mirror to how other people will then react to you. So if I was operating in a way that, you know, I had maybe quite a lot of self-pity or I was, you know, angry at the world and all those sorts of things, people would reflect that back to you. And, and actually I knew that I'm a naturally quite positive person, I'm quite extroverted and I I can be relatively influenced by those people around me and so I thought you know what I I need to project some positivity so that I get that back in abundance. And it's totally I definitely obviously had my low moments and um you know everyone knew that and and gave me that support that I needed but um it was just sort of yeah like the way you choose to approach things, I think people reflect that back at you. And and so that's been really important for me as well.
1: Yeah, I get that. So we speak of successes, but before you pivoted to being so resolute, committed to recovery, how hard was it to, to hear the diagnosis in in the moment? I mean, it, it, it had to have been, but I know there's a family history, but it still had to be like, are you sure? And were there tears? And what? how low did you go? I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to be... I don't know, just how low was it? Because, you know, I've had my own experiences where sometimes it's low.
0: Yeah, um, it really destabilized me, I'd say. It was actually the day before yeah. um, I was due to fly out to a competition. I was actually due to fly out on that day, but I'd moved my um, uh, moved my flight by a day and my team had said that was fine. So um, I you know, I was literally in the midst of competition season. Um, And as an athlete, you, you know where you're going to be in a week, in a month, in three months, you know, pretty much my entire calendar is planned out until Paris 2024. Um, And then all of a sudden someone goes, hang on a minute. There's something going on. that's much, much bigger than rowing. It's much bigger than sports, much bigger than the Olympics, the Paralympics. This is, you know, this is your, your health. Um, And, Yeah, that was really, really tough because I think the biggest thing when I got diagnosed was almost immediately in that meeting. If I'm honest, I don't remember a ton. Um, I remember my husband was with me kind of holding my hand and I could hear him sort of starting to cry. And I was thinking, I can't cry because I need to understand what this man is telling me. (laughs) And I need to try and understand. And, you know, that's (laughs) focus. Yeah, (laughs) probably. (laughs) Sorry, the athlete in me being like process, process, and um, I do remember very early on, uh, you know, uh, very early on thinking, okay, well, maybe I could just maybe it's just surgery, and almost immediately he said, you know, we will be treating this with a chemotherapy, and I was like, okay, um, you know, as soon as you hear those words, you have a preconception, and if I'm honest, it's not particularly a wrong preconception of chemotherapy is no walk in the park. And I was very aware in that moment that my life was about to change very significantly. And I think the most scary part of that for anyone who gets diagnosed with anything of this ilk is just not knowing what the future looks like. And within a moment, you've gone from, as I said, felt healthy and well to someone saying you're not very well, and you're almost going to get a lot more poorly before you get better.
1: It's crazy because you feel great, right? I mean, (laughs) there's no like, I don't have a a limp, there's no headaches.
0: No, I felt completely normal, completely well. And it's so bizarre to sort of think you walk into this meeting feeling well and you walk out with this knowledge that actually, you know, you've you've got this relatively um tricky type of cancer. Um, and it is, it's really scary. And and I think you know, none of my bloods were showing anything, um, you know, like my body my and that's the benefit of early detection that, you know, it hadn't impacted anything else, but it could have. And I think that's what's also really hard to get your head around with that sort of diagnosis is that, um, you know, that essentially in an ideal world, the treatment will be worse than the cancer because the treatment will make you very poorly but it will kill the cancer and the cancer, hopefully, will never make you poorly. But mentally, that's a really hard thing to get your head around, you know, that I'm going to have to basically endure this in order to hopefully never have the long-term implications of the diagnosis.
1: So at the low points, what, what did you lean on? What got you through family, your husband, prayer? I'm always curious about the low points of any of our lives or especially athletes. Like, what was it?
0: Um yeah pretty much all of, all of the things you mentioned really um like my my husband I've been with my husband since I was uh, 17 Yeah um, high school
1: sweethearts right
0: Yeah exactly <laughs> and so you know I I couldn't have asked for anyone um you know closer to me who knows me better to sort of walk through this with me and support me um my family and my husband's family as well cuz again I've known them since I was teenagers they're kind of very close second parents and and they've been amazing and thankfully they both live relatively locally um but um also kind of my teammates um and um I'm also a Christian and and sort of having that sort of uh faith in my life and the support from kind of the church community and and things like that I remember someone um talked to me from church and said um instead of saying you know why me, um, a lot of people get quite angry at diagnosis instead of sort of being like, oh, like, why me question it and say sort of why me? Like, what can I do in this? Why me? And that's one of the reasons I decided to be so open about it and to share my experiences. is because I thought, you know what, I've got a bit of a platform here um, and I I don't know what it's like to have cancer and to go through treatment. And one of the people reasons people don't talk up about it um and don't go to a doctor is because they're scared they're scared of what it might look like so if i can completely open the door and say look all open this is what it's like to have cancer at this age and have the treatment um then you know maybe that's a good thing so that's sort of one of the reasons i decided to be so open is someone from my church just said look like instead of saying why me sort of woe is me just think okay what can i do with this how how can this help others
1: becoming an instrument that's Mm -hmm. great um so What must have been really amazing to hear from the doctors is that uh, staying busy, working out, staying in training, crucial even in treatment to dealing with chemo and other treatments and and the chances for recovery. I mean, that's right up your alley. What do I have to do? And the old thing used to be relax, you know, rest, but not anymore.
0: No, um, there's some incredible science around um, uh, exercise, exercise, kind of how fit and healthy you are going into it. And then there's, um, even ex- there's even um, evidence with certain types of chemo that if you're actually exercising whilst receiving chemo, so some places have like right. exercise bikes and things, which like whilst you're literally physically, um, you know, having the drugs come into your body and then and then being active afterwards as well. And there's amazing stuff, statistics with prognosis, um, uh, particularly things like breast cancer as well. People don't think that that's lifestyle impacted, however, it is still yep. lifestyle impacted. Of Um, and so, you know, we're seeing more and more young women, um, being diagnosed with breast cancer, partly because of awareness and they're getting checked, which is great. Um, but also because there's been a massive change in the way we live our lives over the last 30, 40 years, um, hormone changes, women having children later, all these sorts of things are Mm. contributing. Um, but also a big thing is about fitness. Um, and so for me, maintaining some sort of fitness, um, and staying healthy was something that was important for my mental health. But now I was being told it was still important for my physical health.
1: Were you scared at any, like in a low point, maybe really bad moment coming out of chemo or something. Maybe you lost some friends like we all have, or you know, people, what was there fear? And then how did you fight that? I think I know how you fought that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I was, I was really scared. Um, and, um, What's really great um, was that I was treated at a young adults unit um, where they accept. I just snuck in. I was 29 and a half and they take up <laughs> the age of 30. Um, but once you, I, I got in and I was like, right, even though I turned 30 while I'm in treatment, you're not getting rid of me. And that was amazing. But the challenge with that is, um, is you are <clears throat> being treated with other um young adults who are going through similar things to you, some in primary cancer stages, but quite a lot with secondary cancer Mm -hmm. as well. And, um, I think what was really, um, it's very humbling and very, um, yeah, it really just makes you think, um, is when, you know, you can see potentially like I'm in this position now where I've got through it and have come to an all clear, but just three weeks ago, one of my really good friends on the unit who also had triple negative breast cancer, um, who had it earlier in her twenties and it came back in her late twenties and she, she passed away. No, I'm sorry. Um, and it's just really, um, yeah, it, it hits home, it hits home in a really, really big way. Um, that, you know, it's really aggressive, um, cancer. It's, um, it's just one of those things that, it's just very, it, it brings you a reality check um, and it is tough. And that's the reality of having friends with cancer. Like it's it's not of all of us will make it. And it shows how important it is to keep talking about it and keep, keep raising awareness and things like that. Because um, for every good news story, there's, there's a few that aren't.
1: Can you share any of the discussions you had with her? I mean, I don't know how, how, how much she knew if you knew that the end was near or whether she inspired you With sometimes out of these stories come incredible uplifting things.
0: Oh, absolutely. So, um, uh, Mickey, um, was amazing. And so she, yeah, she was diagnosed in her early 20s and then, um, had a very similar treatment journey to me, really. So, five months of chemotherapy, then she had a double mastectomy, um, didn't have a reconstruction, um, and then basically had secondary breast cancer, came back, um, sort of four years later, um, and, by the time I met her, um, when I first started my treatment, she was, um, responding relatively well to, um, a new type of drug that's recently been released for triple negative breast cancer, which is great. Um, but she was getting sort of increasingly unwell just before Christmas. And we ended up having, if I'm honest, like maybe 5% of our conversations were sort of heavy conversations, if that makes sense. And a lot of them was actually just about you know, things that she was doing, she had sort of a living list of, you know, instead of a bucket list, which is slightly more negative, but essentially served the same purpose of things that she wanted to do. And um, very much like me, she actually has the same oncologist as well. And my oncologist is very straight talking and which is great if you, you're okay with taking that on. And thankfully, <clears throat> Mickey and I were both, were both pretty straight talkers. Um, but she essentially was told, look, you know, now's the time to get your affairs in order if you want to take that big last holiday, you, you go on that holiday. And, um, so in the, in January, she managed to get out to Sri Lanka and have, have an amazing, amazing time. And thankfully when, um, she did pass away, um, she, she ended up passing away. It was liver failure in the end because she had a lot of cancer in her liver by then. Um, but really it was only about 48 hours from her going into hospital to her passing away. And what I think is really tough when I think about it is, um, You know, we literally had plans to go for a coffee the week after that she died. Um, And and I actually just I just think that's inspirational and that's in itself and that she just carried on planning her life and living her life until, you know, her body wasn't able to cope anymore. And I think the thing that got me the most was um, her husband, Tom. Um, He had a lot of similarities to my husband. Um, They've been together for, you know, since childhood sweethearts he was in the police my husband's in the army and they got on really well and i just thought goodness me it's it's you know it's really sad for mickey but actually thinking that you know her husband is a is a widower in his early 30s that's that's what really got me
1: right and that's the um it's just the relentless uh nature of cancer it's not just those of of you who get it and and battle and recover those who don't there's families it's 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 everywhere um but I, I must say, I loved how proactive you were in shaving your head prior to the uh, rigorous chemotherapy to benefit the Little Princess Trust charity. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the motivation there and and what that was like. Yeah, it's growing um, back, by the way.
0: It's coming back now. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> <clears throat> it's getting thicker. So, um, yeah, I when I found out I was definitely going to have chemotherapy, um, so I decided I definitely wanted to kind of basically have a bit of control and take off my hair because, um, I've always had very long blonde sort of princess hair. Um, (laughs) and it was always like a big pre-race ritual as well. I plait my hair for my race and that was my racing, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really interesting because I haven't actually, um, looking forward to racing this season. I'm going to go, I'm going to have to come up with another one. Exactly. I'm going to have to do something new. Um, but I wanted to, essentially kind of donate my hair and um there's a great um charity the little princess trust that essentially does wigs for um young girls and young boys who who kind of lose their hair through cancer um so yeah and and for me it was it was part of taking some control and as athletes you know we talk about controlling the controllables for as much sure. as we can and going into this whole experience i knew that i was about to relinquish all control um and it was something that i thought you know if i cut off my own hair it's gonna kind of um, lessen the sort of trauma of of losing it. And it's a really interesting one, um, hair loss, because one of the first things I did think when they said about chemo was like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna lose my hair. Hmm. And I think it's about um, people knowing you're ill, particularly as a woman, if you're out and about, you can't just pop to the shops. If you are bald, almost certainly people are going to make that assumption that you are unwell and most likely having, you know, some sort of chemotherapy. Um, and I didn't want to be defined by that. Um, and interestingly, you know, as time went on, um, I embraced it a lot more and actually, yeah, I, 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 it's not about caring less what people think. It's more just, I think maybe I was more at peace with, with it. And I think maybe it comes down to the fact that I didn't feel unwell at the beginning And I didn't want people to look at me like I was unwell, whereas actually later down the line, I was feeling quite unwell. And I almost didn't mind people knowing because, you know, it maybe it it sort of uh, the narrative of my head and the narrative of reality maybe lined up a little bit more.
1: The upside is there's no, you know, when you get out of the shower.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have to say there are actually a lot of pros. One, I've learned (laughs) I actually have a very normal shaped head. So that's That's good um and um yeah like i also have a lot more empathy for bold people because it's chilly i had no hair sort of throughout like december january so i really expanded my range of hats um and yeah it's starting to come back now um it's a little bit darker than it was which is quite interesting Hmm. um a lot of people say it can come back curly but it's looking straight so far so we'll see but i'm grateful just to have something
1: What about wigs? Did you, I mean, I've a lot of that. Did you have a favorite wig or did you not? Were you wigless? What was it?
0: I actually, yeah, I did get a wig in the end. Um, partly because they had a few sort of big um, events um, that I didn't want to look back on and think right. gosh, I was poorly, you know, look back at the pictures and things. So, I got um, an MBE, so I was given uh, an MBE um, after Tokyo, which was amazing. And I got to sort of go to uh, Windsor Castle and meet Princess Anne. And I wanted to sort of, you know, be look well and normal. Um, and um, it was my 30th birthday and my sister's getting married in a couple of weeks. And um, I knew that, you know, hopefully I'll be through treatment by then. But, you know, my hair probably wouldn't be how I choose to have it for her big day. And also, I didn't want it to be about me. Um, it's nice to be able exactly. to pop a wig on and just blend in. So yeah, I got a good wig and yeah, I'm really pleasantly surprised by it. And so my plan is once I sort of grow my hair out enough that I don't feel I need it anymore, I, I'm going to donate it back and someone who maybe can't afford a wig can can have mine secondhand.
1: With uh, a lot of good karma in that wig.
0: <laughs> yeah, hopefully.
1: <laughs> Did your teammates help in this recovery, seeing what they had to live with or to overcome to make the Paralympics?
0: Yeah, Um I mean, I couldn't have asked to be around a more kind of inspirational group of people. And in all honesty, you know, the way that they operate, um, is, is very, um, the right phrase. They don't ask for or expect any empathy. don't want to be treated any differently. Uh, they want to be respected for being athletes, um, and for being great individuals. And to some extent that was sort of how I wanted to operate. um, I didn't particularly want anyone's um, "sorries" or "I hope you're okay" and 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 stuff, and and sort of I wanted to be treated as myself, um, who was sort of going through a challenging time, rather than you know being labelled as something else. And so I think I I took a lot from the way they behaved and operated, and um, I think because they have also experienced this in in their own way they knew how to operate with me. Um, you know, I didn't want to be treated like someone who was fragile. Um, so, you know, silly example is, you know, we, we play a lot of games. We spend a lot of time on camps mm-hmm. and a lot of card games and, you know, I didn't want them to be giving me an easy ride and all of those sorts of things. I wanted them to take the mickey out of me and and do all of those sorts of things. <laughs> and, and they did. And that, that's, that just contributes to that normality, which I think you crave when your whole world's been turned upside down. Um, but, yeah, just basically by sort of you know leading by example, um, and I was able to sort of follow follow what they did and, and they sort of bounced that back at me. I was very lucky
1: that's great uh, was there on the other side, was there any concern that the great work your teammates have done may be overshadowed by you have an incredible story, but you don't want that, which it probably has it, to some extent taking away from what they've accomplished with you.
0: Yeah, totally. And um, Through no
1: fault of your own. It's just how it
0: is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. And I I think um, the reality is, you know, when you're part of a team sport, you'll always end up with one or two people sort of being pushed to the front um, because they are the media hook um, and whatever Mm -hmm. that looks like. Um, Where I was very, very clear with my team was if at any point, Um, essentially me wanting to carry on competing and racing was slowing the crew down or impeding the progress of the crew that they had to be big and bold enough to say, Aaron, I think this is too much like either for me and my health or for the team and the mental load that it was putting on the team. And, and I said, like, I will be really cross if that doesn't happen. And, and sort of the way things actually eventually sort of organically progressed is, um, I had had a couple of chemotherapies and I was able to compete at the European Championships, but sort of through a conversation with my oncologist who worked with our team doctor Mm -hmm. and sort of an open conversation, we all sort of thought, you know what? I should wrap up my season at the Europeans, which was essentially about five, six weeks before the World Championships in order for me to then go focus on my recovery and um, continue sort of receiving treatment and then sort of allow the team to sort of, do this with me and for me and then them to then go and, and essentially achieve what they ended up doing, which was winning the world championships. And, um, it was a really, really tough thing to do. And it felt, it felt quite selfless, um, in a way, um, which it wasn't in another way. It you felt just like felt you could have been there. Like I really did. Yeah. I think I could have, but the risk was too high because I could have been there and hindsight's a wonderful thing but what if, what if, what if, and I would never have forgiven myself if I'd have compromised their performance. Um, and so I think it allowed them to, you know, go and perform. And, um, and I think that, that was great, but what they did for me at the Europeans, I, I've, I've sort of written about it and it's very, very hard to articulate, but they were, they were so selfless to essentially kind of allow me to race. Um, and, You know, I would never race if I didn't think I was on my game, but they just trusted me. And that means so much because, you know, on paper, maybe I shouldn't have been able to do that. But the trust from my team and my oncologists and and everything to go like, no, if you say you'll be good, we back you. And yeah, it was it will be, you know, forever the race of my life,
1: especially for a dominant team. Like, you know, they want to win. They love you. But at some point, you know, so you know that they're not going to give you that much if it means, you know, there's a there's that delicate dance.
0: Totally. Yeah. Like and, and no one wants to be the ones to lose a legacy. You know, this this crew is um, about 13 years unbeaten. Um, <laughs> it's 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 crazy. And and like to be a part of the legacy is such a privilege. But oof, there's pressure. Like you don't want to be that one that like, you know, drops the ball, um, right. particularly as the, the team was performing really well that season
1: is there any analogy you can make without reaching too far just follow me here for your event you know being a coxswain in a boat battling cancer the steady voice reading the situation in the moment building momentum toward you know ultimate victory is there have you thought about that at all during your process
0: yeah I I really have and I I think essentially um it's made me reflect on that in a monologue a little bit more and wow. because really that's what a coxswain is like I am hopefully the voice of reason um <laughs> in the midst of um you know endurance pain power all those things that essentially a rower is experiencing during um you know the race of their life whether that's world well, championships final paralympics olympics all of those sorts of things and and um that self-talk and, and how you how do you motivate yourself and what is your why and all those sorts of things. It's, it's really made me think about my own. I spend a lot of time thinking about what motivates my athletes, what motivates them as individuals, how do I get the best out of them? And, you know, it's made me think, okay, what is my why? Like, why am I getting up and doing this? What What is motivating me? And I think um, for me, it was all about essentially doing this as well as I could, um, um, which sounds odd, but like, it's sort of approaching it mentally with, with logic and rationale. Um, like those moments you said, you know, are you scared? And it's like sort of, yes, but you can manage that in a way, you know. Don't sure. go on Google. That's a great start. Like
1: absolutely. <laughs> You'll always
0: your um, two clicks from death, even if you've got a nosebleed. So <laughs> imagine if you get told you've got cancer. What you can read, like those sorts of things, and like being like, "Well, no, that doesn't make any sense." Ask the experts. Rely on those things. Um, how, what can help you? What will do this, that, and the other? So. Mm-hmm. That sort of made me really, really think about it because I'm like, okay, I expect my athletes to listen to me. Um, and so sort of, yeah, think about that self-talk. How do you talk to yourself when you're on your own? Cause that really is the true, that is the the honest, true you, isn't it?
1: Yeah, for sure. So where does where does that all come from in your in your developing years when you're a little kid? Were you bossy? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Yes, I was. Um, my granddad always says I was, um, I, he always used to call me miss independent. So it would be the the, the general phrase, apparently, that I, I said, you know, maybe my first few words was, I can do it. Um, you know, whether that's putting my seatbelt on, feeding myself, all of these sorts of things. Yep. Um, so I've always been sort of miss independent. Um, and, yeah, and I've always loved being part of a team. Um and you know being a sort of natural extrovert and mm-hmm. uh, uh sort of generally you know the voice um so whether that's leadership or 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 anything like that and um i think that i grew up in a family that did loads of sports we com- we did loads of like competition um, i had two sisters um and my dad um we'd be competing at anything whether it was card games beach cricket um, you know, all the way up to sort of on our bikes every weekend. And, and I just, I just loved it. Um, and so, yeah, I sort of found coxing sort of by accident, really. really? Um, I started at university. Um, I went to a state school. Um, I'd never experienced rowing at school. And then I went to Oxford and, you know, everyone knows a boat race. And I thought, Hey, let's just give it a go. And I went down to my college and they looked at me and they were like, you're five foot two. <laughs> How you about coxing. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I, and really, I think I'd like to think this is probably very similar to a lot of people, um, who play team sports is that really what, what hooks you in and then keeps you in is the people, um, it's that shared common goal and maybe unsurprisingly sort of rowing, you know, hit the mark for me because, um, you know, I am maybe always someone who does things a little bit differently. Um, and so, you know, in that coxswain seat, you're the only coxswain in the crew and, um, you know, you do have that leadership role yet. Fundamentally, your role is to get the best out of other people. Um, it's a really niche, niche role in sports, but um, yeah, I love it. It's perfect for me.
1: It absolutely is. So uh, tapping into your family, in a way, were you lucky that breast cancer runs in the family? Maybe you were more more or less aware. Um, but what do you tell millions of young women who may not be aware or have any family history? Um, you know, I, I noted that cancer hits only 4% of women under 39 in the UK. So it's, you know, it's, it's fortunate that you were able to to uh, find it early. Uh, what's the message you give? And, and so many in this crazy world of bad health care don't have access to maybe the, the tools you had.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean... Um, I was in a yeah massive minority um, to kind of get breast cancer at my age. Um, and I, I do agree. I think because of the family history, um, I was probably a lot more aware um, and, you know, aware of the need to keep checking myself and kind of a good phrase that sort of come out of this is sort of like knowing you're normal. So it's knowing what normal is for you. And then if something isn't normal, um, because one of the very bizarre things I think about particularly the sorts of cancers which, you know, fall under the maybe the embarrassing kind of um, uh, topic is, you know, bowel cancer, Mm -hmm. um, testicular cancer, breast Mm -hmm. cancer, ovarian cancer. It's all something that, you know, maybe isn't necessarily dinner table conversation, even within a family. Um, So it's essentially having um, the confidence to know what your normal is um, and to go get checked um, because you don't have experience of what, other people's normal is um it's not quite the same as you know melanoma or something like that which you might be able to notice a change in your skin or something like that or someone else could notice that for you it's very much down to the individual um and so like sort of my biggest message would be um particularly for women and thinking about breast cancer is um sort of once a month um particularly because of your breast change around your periods and things like that so trying to do it at the same time every month so you've got something similar to compare yeah. to It's essentially just, um, it's looking and feeling and seeing if anything changes. Um, You know, it's not always a lump. It could be uh, a dimpling or um, kind of a change in your skin texture or pain, Um, but essentially, you know, it doesn't cost anything to go get checked um, and you're not wasting anyone's time um, and that's the big thing I hear from quite a lot of people is you know they feel like well it couldn't happen to me because and our brains that's just
1: fear isn't it (laughs) totally
0: totally our brains can rationalize anything Um, and that's like I said one of the reasons I wanted to be really open was look like I'm going to show you what happens when the worst happens, you know, when you go to the doctor and they say, you've got cancer and you go, Oh my goodness. And I'm, that's why I thought, you know, I'm going to open the door on this and just talk about it because actually you can still live your life. You can still achieve things. And, um, you know, whether you're stage one or stage four, there's, there's still life to be, to be lived. And, um, the earlier you catch these things, the better.
1: Can I crown you the, uh, coxswain of cancer recovery
0: I'd love that thank you
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean you can you can trademark it (laughs) no I'm just kidding but uh, I mean and you're you're a great spokesperson for it spokeswoman um, because you know you've gone through it and I'm wondering how this whole process and you don't even know how it's going to impact you going forward because you're very much uh, in the uh, in the solution and I think so many people need to hear this but how has it changed your outlook on life? Do you look at the clock and go, hey, I could have been done by now, but I got another 60? <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, do you know what? Like The thing that actually hit me the most, is I said, I I turned 30 during my treatment. Yep. Um, and I mean, I'm not going to pretend I was having some sort of existential crisis turning 30, but it did make me really think that what a privilege it is to get old. Um, that was my biggest thing. When I turned 30... I was like, wow, aren't I lucky to turn 30? And I think and I hope that will stay with me for the rest of my life um, is that aging is an absolute privilege that is not there for everybody. And this is particularly, you know, my friend Mickey, some of my other friends on the unit who have stage four cancer. And right now it's um, being treated, but it will never be cured. And one day they will die of cancer. Um, you know, it's, it, that that is not something that they can say aging is not is 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 a privilege and and i think that's probably my my biggest outlook and i think also that you know life is is too short to do things you don't love and things you don't enjoy Um, and you know for me i feel so blessed um that i'm in a sport which i love and was something i am you know chomping at the bit to get back to um and you know, if if I'd essentially got diagnosed and thought, you know what, maybe I'm not that excited to get back for rowing, then I would have retired and I would have said, you know what, then I'm going to find my new passion because right. actually, yeah, life life is too short to do things that you're not enjoying.
1: That's interesting. Is that that's how I think? My dad died when he was 36, and I go, you know, I'm quite a bit older than that, and and I look back at each year, and you know, he got cheated, but he had a great life, and and I'm so thankful that you know all the things that you that are real about life that, you know, it could have been any time for any of us, but, uh, I appreciate, as I'm sure you do, uh, every day now, um, you hadn't been successful with able-bodied rowing teams. So why Paralympics? I'm sure you get that question.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, so yeah, I, I started off in, in sort of the able-bodied world and, um, uh, competed. I did did the boat race with Oxford, um, Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, my first year on the GB rowing team, I was actually with the, the women's eight. Um, and so the way that we train in the UK is actually the Paralympic and the Olympic rowing teams all train together, um, in one big, um, training center, which as you can imagine is brilliant and chaotic and busy, but Um,
1: but wonderful for all parties, I would imagine.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. And it's great to all be able to train and compete together. Um, and yeah so i was trialing for the women's eight um and i did the european championships raced at henley but i wasn't selected for the world championships and at the time i was i was absolutely devastated um the uh, other woman who was chosen was a very good friend of mine and hindsight's a wonderful thing right i look back and i'm like Do you know what you were the right person for the crew we were quite different in approach and personality interesting and she was the right person for that fit of athlete. Um, and I was sort of, uh, kind of deciding at the end of that season, whether sort of what, what was next for me. And, um, uh, I was approached by one of the Paralympic athletes. Um, obviously we all trained together. We know each other. And he was like, have you ever considered trialing for our squad? And I was like, oh, no, I haven't actually. And he sort of had a chat with his coach and his coach was like, yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd be, we'd love it if you were interested. Um, and so I, sort of um yeah turned over new leaf and sort of joined essentially the trialing process for the paralympic squad and that was 2000 and, uh the 2017-18 season um and i sort of felt like i found my people um <laughs> as a coxswain um i don't need to have a disability in order to cox a paralympic squad it's very similar um you know, you can essentially cox able-bodied or para athletes. Um, and I just really clicked with that squad, um, much smaller team, um, which I think I enjoyed because you actually just build those personal relationships and they just mean that little bit more. Um, as I already said, they're all fascinating individuals who have come from some were born with their impairments. Some kind of had maybe, um, accidents or things that have led to them having this impairment. So they've sort of overcome this in their life. And, um, I mean just the way they train um they are just athletes um they are incredible and so it's it's yeah I've never really sort of looked back and um you know after Tokyo some questions were like oh would you maybe look to go over to the Olympic team and I said like no not really I'm not really particularly interested in that like I think the Paralympic squad is is incredible and inspirational and um They're they're who I'd like to like to stick with for the next cycle. Um, so yeah. And yeah, you just meet some incredible people and, um, it's yeah, it's really, really enjoyable. I also think you have to be a lot more inventive, um, as a coxswain, um, in terms of my rigging and things like that, but also the way that you approach Hmm. coaching and coxing.
1: In in what way?
0: Yeah. So, um, the four generally is of, um, probably the most able-bodied athletes that compete in the Paralympics. Um, in a way that, you know, if you saw them on a podium or you saw them rowing along, you maybe wouldn't be able to guess what their impairments are. They're relatively quite minimal disabilities. Um, But it requires some quite technical rigging, which is basically boat setup and things like that to essentially manage both, you know, we've got men and women rowing in the same crew. So Mm -hmm. making sure that they actually, um, that works functionally. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but then also, For example, um, you might have an athlete in your boat who has Erbs Palsy, which is a birth defect, which means um, they've got sort of neural damage around their shoulder and they can't necessarily do certain movements. Um, They can do the rowing stroke very well, but maybe if you're asking them to do a technical exercise, they might not be able to do that in the way that you would expect a normal able-bodied crew to do it. So, let's say I'm trying to get them to make a good technical change around the back end, my normal go-to exercise would be X, but mm-hmm. this athlete can't do it. So how am I going to do that in another way that achieves the same result, but it's something that she can do as well as the rest of the crew. Um, it's sort of that sort of thing, which now I find it relatively sort of intuitive, but first joining the squad, it's something right. that you have to consciously think about. Uh,
1: all right, let's talk about uh, you and, and Sam's next phase, mm-hmm. having a family. Um, uh, as I understand it, there are embryos on ice just in case. I mean, if you don't mind getting into the details, I mean, you know, do you know yet uh, what the future looks like in, in, in that way about you having kids?
0: Yeah. Um, and this is something I, I've always really wanted to talk about because, um, it's just not talked about at all. Um, for women who are going to have, um, chemotherapy is I didn't know, but essentially, you know, it can render you infertile, um, uh it can do the same for men but it's less common um essentially because chemotherapy attacks um cells that duplicate quickly um which is why you lose your hair that's why your nails are bad your skin is bad and it attacks eggs essentially um they are you know quickly duplicating cells um and so one of the first things when i got diagnosed um they said you're going to start chemotherapy is i was like oh my goodness like i all of a sudden you know i'm considering my chances of future motherhood and all these other things coming into the mix as well as you
1: went there that quickly i mean that's that's amazing
0: yeah i was essentially told in that first meeting that essentially you know it it can have that impact and one of the things that i would be given is a certain drug um which is called zolidex which essentially um freezes and puts your um ovaries into sort of a pause um and brings on a temporary menopause and so you know you're dealing with all these other things and you're like oh my goodness i'm gonna essentially potentially be thrown into what can be a permanent menopause at the age of 29 um and so very, very quickly, um, we were referred to Guy's Hospital in London who were absolutely incredible. Um, I had, I believe, probably the equivalent of about four or five meetings in one giant meeting um, where my husband and I literally had to have some very, very deep discussions about everything from, um, you know, sort of uh, whether we froze eggs or we froze embryos. Wow. Um you know what that might look like if one of us was to die. Could the other person still use them? Like all of these wow. <laughs> ethical questions that you never think. You you know you you've also been told you had cancer about six days ago. It was it was mad. Um, but they were amazing, and I essentially. Um, started the the hormone treatment. Um, and essentially from my initial meeting um to exactly two weeks later, um, I had surgery to harvest the eggs. Um, and we decided to freeze embryos because that was more stable. Um, and yeah, so essentially we ended up with nine embryos um which were frozen, um, which is just amazing. And I literally I had that surgery on the Tuesday and they started chemotherapy on the Wednesday. Wow. So it was a big it was a big 48 hours in the Kennedy household.
1: That sounds incredible. So does that mean there's nine kids coming?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, as my granddad said, he was like, "Erin, that's an eight and a cop. <laughs> You've got like the bomb trap growing family to come." <laughs> Um, yeah, but um, it, I mean, we're really blessed that that's, that's an option. Um, yep. Reality is is that now I've just finished treatment, I no longer need to be taking these injections to keep me in the menopause. Um, it will be essentially a case of wait and see to see if my reproductive system kicks back into action or whether, you know, having had these injections for a certain number of time, it can cause permanent menopause. But at least, you know, there's a backup. Um, yeah, so it's something that, um, we'll definitely be Sam and I will be looking at sort of post Paris, um, and sort of having a family and, and, and looking where that sort of all fits in, but we're just really blessed that we did have the opportunity to have, um, have the fertility kind of intervention because not everyone does. Um, and again, this is one of the big sort of, um, pluses for early detection, because if we found it early, we wouldn't have had time. What are you hearing
1: from the doctors about, uh, you know, concern for passing the gene on? I guess that's if you look at your family, an extended family, I mean, it's 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 there.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so uh, one of the things that we would do um, is now we have these embryos is you can have them screened. Um, wow. So we could screen the embryos and only select the embryos that do not have the BRCA gene because um, they'd have right. a 50% chance. That's child.
1: incredible.
0: Yeah, so essentially, I could sort of eliminate that from my from my line, um, and I absolutely would would do that. Um, my husband and I have talked about it a lot. That's because, great. You know, it, it's 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 incredible that that is available, and you know, as essentially over my lifetime, obviously I didn't know this at the time, but pretty much very unlucky. But I probably would have had an over eighty percent chance of breast cancer in my lifetime, and to know that I'm wow. essentially eliminating that from any future children would be yeah amazing
1: make sure you tell them when they're old enough to understand hey i took (laughs) care of you (laughs) exactly (laughs) so what's your schedule now pointing i mean olympic qualification i know for many many uh olympians and the process is kind of uh tedious but what is what's next on the horizon going toward paris
0: yeah so um Uh, It's actually the next big competition for us is the European Championships, which is happening at the end of May. Um, And that's going to be a big emotional one. um, because uh, It's my return to international competition. My last competition was Europeans. um, But also the first day of the competition is a year to the day that I was diagnosed.
1: That's Um, unbelievable.
0: Yeah. So like to be, you know, in a boat on the start line thinking, goodness, like a year ago today this is what i was told and and you know to be racing down a track will just be yeah That that's gonna be the big the big test i think can you yeah, you, hold gotta, you gotta
1: keep the the, the uh, you gotta keep the the tears for the end I don't, I, good luck with that uh, <laughs> but then you're the coxswain so that you can do that
0: <laughs> exactly exactly so yeah that's a big one then we have um kind of a couple of um international regattas um in italy and in paris actually we're actually racing on the on the olympic course in paris um in august which will be really exciting Mm -hmm. and a bit of a privilege not a lot of um countries are getting to go and test out the course um and then yeah for us it's the the big big focus of the year is qualification um which is happening in very very end of august start of september so that is the big the big goal um is you know qualifying and obviously as well for us um, in rowing is is obviously the ranking that you get um, in the world will help with the seeding next year it it all feeds in Um, but it it feels crazy obviously I've had a very bizarre year um, but being a three year cycle it's a whole different ball game Um, everything is happening so fast and the games are next year it's crazy
1: yeah we know here that's that's for sure (laughs) so as you approach things like you know assuming you guys qualify don't want to hex that but i think uh, with your run it's you know probably fairly safe to say but um this opening and this olympics in paris as cool as the first one was in tokyo for so many reasons uh you probably may be in your quiet moments uh recently have dreamed now about like opening and what that'll mean and then the first race and you know this olympics is like lucky to be there kind of thing huh
0: oh my goodness i to be honest before even as I, knows, I was diagnosed i was I was literally sat in Tokyo looking forward to Paris because Tokyo, I was grateful to be there. And I think, I would say, you know, the vibe in the village was gratitude, that we were like, thank you that this is happening because we all worked, you know, for five years, you know, and that's before all the other stuff that you've done to be here and we were so grateful that it was happening. Um, And it was, you know, the most amazing experience in its own right But, you know, we knew how much more there was and that we, you know, what we could have and what we would have in Paris, you know, the crowds and the the atmosphere. It's
1: irreplaceable. It really is so much of, and it's, you know, I was there, Tokyo did a great job within the incredible limits, but yeah, you want to, it's a world celebration.
0: Yeah. And so it was already sort of, you know, on a pedestal in my mind. And now, you know, knowing what I've been through um, and I've sort of been dreaming about getting there. And then to sort of, you know, get to that point that I'm healthy, I'm now sort of allowing myself to believe that I could be there. Um, And I think to share that with my friends and family, um, obviously being in the UK, I'd only just started getting in a boat when London was around um, and and I started rowing in 2011. So this is the closest to a home games I will ever get. Um, Very easy for, you know, cohorts of friends and family to kind of get uh, across the channel and and come and watch and support and so i think I, yeah i get goosebumps thinking about it i think it will be momentous in so so many ways and i yeah i, I just really really want to be there
1: well uh that's a perfect way to end and uh, it's been so enlightening for me i mean i i have a really lucky job i get to interview and speak with so many of you who uh, who have done great things, but also have overcome and have come through, and are a voice for for good and a force for good. And uh, we really appreciate your joining us on this Olympics.com podcast, Aaron. Best of luck. Uh, I don't need to give you much of a pep talk. <laughs> you seem to have that covered.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
1: This is the Olympics.com podcast. 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 Wow powerful and inspiring stuff there details about the rigorous journey and now the recovery and gratitude for all that the future holds well done aaron for more
0: in depth and original olympics related feature content search our platforms here on olympics.com
1: so much more focused content on rowing right here for the clicking on olympics.com the titles feed the flame camps to champs day jobs Generation Rise, Middle East and North Africa, Transform My Meal, Strangest Moments, Anatomy of Take the Mic, Hitting the Wall, The Tech Race, The Olympics on the Record, all of those features. Original content available right here on olympics.com. That's it for this episode of the olympics.com podcast. Hit us up at Olympics with any feedback you have. We obviously love feedback. Helps us to get better. You can also hit me up on my Twitter at tk tweets. We'll see you next time.
0: This is the olympics.com podcast.